So we're here at Coffee and Poets in Series 26 at the Naked Coffee Lounge at 11th and H in Sacramento. Uh, our producer is Lawrence Dinkins, Jr., also known as NSAA, and I'm Frank Graham, here to interview today Julia Levine. And uh, we're very pleased to have you here as our guest at Coffee and Poets. I'm happy to Julia. be here. <laughs> it's good to hear you. Um, all the way from Davis, California. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll just read a brief bio of Julia, and then we're going to hear her read some of her poems, and we'll have some discussion. Uh, before we get too into it, though, I want to read... Uh, an announcement about a, an important reading reading that's coming in June, June 26th. Dana Joya is going to be at the Crocker Museum. Uh, Cal State's Poet Laureate will be at the Crocker Museum, June 26th, 6 p.m. That's sponsored by the Sacramento Poetry Center and the Sacramento Metropolitan Arts Council. And he's a great reader. Is he? Okay. I haven't heard He's him read, amazing. especially in person. Yeah. Terrific. All right. So Dana Joya, get him on your calendar for June 26th. This this will air just in time for you to take notice of that and make it to his show at the Crocker. So um, again, we're talking with Julia B. Levine. She is the author of four collections of poetry, including Ask, which was the winner of the 2003 Tampa Review Prize and Practicing for Heaven, which won the 1998 Anhinga Poetry Prize and a bronze medal from Forward Magazine for her first collection. Her latest collection, Small Disasters Seen in Sunlight, uh, inaugurates a new poetry series for LSU Press at Louisiana State, and it also won the 2014 uh, North California Northern California Book Award for Poetry, a very important book in our time and in our region, so be sure to pick it up at a local bookstore. Regarding the collection, Small Disaster Seen in Sunlight, it's been said, with an astonishing grasp of language and detail, these poems enact a visceral lyric experience that circle around the mystery of tragedy and beauty as it enlarges the soul. Levine has been awarded numerous grants and awards for her writing, including Discovery from the Nation Magazine Award, as well as the Pablo Neruda Prize in Poetry, which is comes out of my old hometown. Oh, yeah. Tulsa, Tulsa. Oklahoma. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, Fran Ringgold, sort of yeah. a friend, if you know her. Uh, well, just from that. Oh, okay. Yeah, terrific woman. Uh, recently, uh, Julia's work has been anthologized in The Places That Inhabit Us, the Autumn House Anthology of Contemporary American Poetry, and the Bloomsbury Anthology of Contemporary Jewish American Poetry. She received a PhD in clinical psychology from UC Berkeley, and as I said earlier, lives and works in Dallas, or Davis, California. Julia, I think... If you, if you will, let's just start with one of your new poems. I know that you have a new oh, manuscript. Wow. That you're okay, sure, yeah. Excellent. All right, so, so can I say a few words please about do. that? Yeah. So um, I'm working on a series of what I call ordinary psalms. And what I mean by that is I'm really interested in how if you give careful attention to something in the mundane world or even in the profane world, there is something about poetry that always reaches for something that I think can enter the realm of reverence. So I'm particularly interested in the idea of ordinary quotidian life um, somehow going beyond the mundane and profane into something that resembles reverence. So I'm going to start with one. It's a really new poem. It's called Ordinary Psalm with Violent Interruptions. I just want to say that one of my obsessions in life is the coexistence of um, 
beauty and tragedy. And this spring after our good rain was a particularly beautiful spring. And there was also lots of terrible things happening in the world. So this is a poem about that. Ordinary Psalm with Violent Interruptions. March crashing its green fruit against the re-given sky. You mute the TV news with its partly butchered body counts, looped reels of smoke shrouding the dissembled and fallen. Outside the garden is a voice box hallelujah, all those tulips noosing vermilion, vernal debris trembling, fritillaries and trillium. Commentary seems beside the point, like returning over lunch to your daughter's narrative, a swallowtail flashing beside the Chinese takeout, random brightness, the wrong things shining. Mule deer everywhere, she'd said, and under the bleach of an equinox moon, she could have driven all the way with her headlights off. Death is a plea bargain you made under threat of never being born, and spring a gorgeous parole, Nicasio Reservoir decanting a winter of good rain, a four-point buck staring towards the Pacific, his ears like paired kites tugged by wind, your daughter's voice levitating through the car's Bluetooth back to you, we all believe what we want to believe. Somewhere the fog has lifted. New suicide vests hang unexploded on hooks. The list of dead and injured pause in their rise. Okay, you can turn the volume back on. Hmm. I hear this, a somewhat consistent theme so far and uh, that relates back to the small disaster scene in Sunlight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of sort of the contrast of beauty and dark or yeah. uh, the trauma. Yeah, or the coexistence of them is what I'm particularly interested in. That poem, I'm really curious about the idea that you can either listen or not and you get both of them if you're going to listen. So you cannot be in the world and you can be safe or you can be in the world and you sort of get both. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Um, and it's, you call it a psalm, correct? So yeah. So a psalm is a song or a... Well, it's, a, it's the words to a sacred song. Mm -hmm. um, and I love the idea of writing a series of ordinary psalms. So they're really not... Um, they're not confined the way things in religion are in the same way. I don't have to praise God in the same way or even necessarily God at all. It, 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 that's not really my um, idea. My okay. idea really is just to praise the ordinary world. And what a fantastic and dangerous world it can be. <laughs> exactly, yes. All right. Well, that's, that's fantastic. Let's, let's contrast that. Let's go back to another poem that, that I have read before. Okay. Um, and I think it's I think it's on page nine in the book Small Disasters Seen in Sunlight and Heat Wave on the Children's Unit. I guess we get another picture of sort of trauma and beauty together. This is a really dark poem, actually. I don't know how much beauty there is in this poem. Um, Beautiful writing, perhaps. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Tragic. But this is really taken from um, sort of a collection of some of the very most disturbing work I've done as a child psychologist in my life. And sometimes things happen in that world that are just so painful 
that I have to write my way out of it or I could probably never go back to my office. It's called Heat Wave on the Children's Unit. The be- the be- I just want to say the beginning of the poem starts with a line that is part of the instructions for drawing a picture of a person, which is a, a very standard technique in my field. So Heat Wave on the Children's Unit. Draw the best person you can, the instructions go. And this afternoon in my office, the boy squints up at me to see what a real person looks like. The air conditioner rattles my windows. Outside, every breeze has been beaten into stillness, sun merciless as a scalding brand laid against flesh, or the searing tear of a stranger forcing himself inside this boy. Now his buzz cut brushes my hand, a surprising softness to the bristles as he sketches what isn't here, a nasty gash on my forehead, a broken bone cracked through my arm. Because some children are a warning for anyone who might listen, the way a bird will sing at the edge of a storm, or a horse might batter a barn just before an earthquake. Because he wants to know if I can help with a bad dream, the one he has every night now, his house on fire, his body trapped on the third floor, inflamed and falling. Because this heat is the fire of the actual, and always another life burns behind this one. Super poem. Just so compelling. Brings you into it and... I don't know how many people experience this level of tragedy in their everyday work. You know, you encounter this perhaps all the time and metaphor must be an important way. Also, you mentioned the the first line, draw the best person you can as being a sort of technique of your. Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for what you said. But second of all, you really speak to something, which is that, um, when you first I, and second of all, I hope other people don't encounter this. It's it, it it's it's a terrible thing the way kids are um, hurt and um, traumatized in ways that don't ever go away. You know, no matter what you would like to believe about it. Um, so I hope other people don't encounter this in their everyday work. Um, I think I knew what I was signing on for, but I didn't know. I think that's true of a lot of things. But the metaphor idea, Frank, you're exactly right because children um, don't use language the way we do, which is part of what I love about being around children. They speak metaphorically. They speak through play. And usually when you ask a kid to draw the best person you can, really kids that are doing well will draw a happy picture of themselves. And it's very rare for a child to look to the person that's in the room with them that they barely know and draw that. And it, it seems that metaphor must also be uh, – you're especially gifted at metaphor and simile. And we talked a little bit before this about how developed your those two techniques have become in your poetry. Um, I looked at an earlier book and, yes, the stories are still rich and metaphor and simile still exist. But they, you've just really blown them to a new level. They, they've reached a new level. Well, um, thank you. Yeah. I, and I, I, I'm wondering how you, uh, how do you use metaphor? Is that, do you think that's an extension of your career somehow that you must use metaphor to explain things to children or to clients that going through various things in life? Is that part of where that skill comes from? 
I actually think I'm really bad at that. Um, and it's funny because I think my writing is so unconscious and associative when it comes to the language I use. I'm really not very um, clever or uh, intellectual in the way I pursue the actual metaphors I'm using. They they happen. Um, and I really, it's not something I feel particularly proud of. What I because it, it just happens. What I feel proud of is the way I have to figure out how to make it fit the poem or try to figure out where the poem's going. I, I tend to be a rather unconscious person in a lot of ways that are very <laughs> annoying to people that like me. And <laughs> I think this is just maybe one of the more productive things that happens out of that. <laughs> you know, we also, the, the fact that you're married, there, you have many references to nature and what's happening in nature and you put that time and time again in your poems and in um, comparison to the the terrible things that are happening with people, either an explanation or uh, further embellishment of something. Um, and, and I wonder if being married to a landscape professional, an artist uh, in that field, does that does that bring anything into it? You you named some species that I've never heard of yeah. that must be yeah. glorious. Well, uh, well, and I'm curious about. Well, before the internet, it was invaluable, and so my um, my relationship with my husband is very helpful in that regard because he's like a little walking encyclopedia about a lot of things. But honestly, my um, feeling for nature is something I wrote about before I even met him, and I think it's part of why we like each other because yeah. we both are really drawn to nature. It's a natural thing to happen then. Yeah. Well, I'm curious also about your the influence of other poets um, to you. I know you've got some, not maybe mentors, but people you must communicate with who help you along in the process. But who, who, what poets have you read that really stick with you and that you return to and you feel may influence your own writing? Well, um, I don't know if how. Any. No, tons. I don't know how people right without reading. I mean, to me, I don't have an MFA, which I really wish I did, but the way I've learned to write is by reading and studying what I love and sometimes just writing out the poems I love. Um, I have all kinds of influences and they change, but you know, there's some people I just love so much, like Jack Gilbert is one of my all-time favorites. And um, some of the other people that I love that I go back to again and again is Larry Levis. And um, I love Philip Levine's work. Mm. I love um, Louise Gluck's work. And then more recently, you know, people like Dana Levin and people, I, I love Mark Doty's work. I love um, mm. some of my own personal friends whose work I love. Ruth Schwartz is an amazing mm. poet. In terms of mentors, you know, I've done summer things where I've met poets and I've, I've had a few chances to like be a apprentice to people. But honestly, I think reading for me has been the school, you know? Sure. I, on that note, I think well, let's turn to another. I could name so many more though. I mean, like just, I'm sitting here going, what about Bob Haas? And what about Brenda Hillman? <laughs> <laughs> I could just keep going. <laughs> of course. Yeah. And I can see the narrative thread that you mentioned in some of these, you know, Philip Levine and uh, Mark Doty in particular with their rich narrative tales uh, that you have 
But I also really love lyric poems and I also love really weird poems that I don't understand. <laughs> I'm just not that good at writing them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think I want to go to Body of Want. So this will definitely show you some of the things about being married to um, a landscape contractor oh. who knows his plants like nobody's business. Um, and also this was written when I was a much um, younger mother and my not surprisingly, my kids were younger. <laughs> um, and uh, I think the only thing I really want to say before I read this poem is also, um, I don't know the first pass through if you might know that the beginning section, it's in three sections. The beginning section is about Passover and the story of Passover and telling something somewhat grotesque to your kids, you know. And that the last section, um, I mean, the second to last section, so the second section, I think it's clear, but I, I did honestly come across two people having sex naked on the beach right near where we were staying, which was a little surprising. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so I don't know how delicate I was in writing that, but I just want you to know that. Okay, so this is called Body of Want, One. But we had to call them in. And after the chant of soap and water... After we'd toweled their small bodies dry, we told it again, the story they loved, the one of deliverance and fury, the one where the angels were more terrible than heaven. Outside, the great stars shone on their way out of light, and the elk were a river down that ridge, rutting, horns locked, working through the staggered wreckage of the flesh. The wood cracked and spit blue flames. And because the thought of death left them feeling strangely more alive, the children went on asking how the lambs were slaughtered and where on the doors the blood was smeared and how the boys, the firstborn, were murdered, their eyes round and fastened hard to horror. Strange, then, to carry them into sleep History's darkness harnessed to their thin frames and undressed beside our bed, the worn beauty of your body blossoming from underneath the stiff fabric of jeans, the looser cloth of shirt. Who wrote it once that all beginnings depend so surely on betrayal, night coming down hard along the lonely edges of that bay, the hard rock coves stung by the lashing, reaching water, the high tides touching what had not been touched for weeks. Two, noon, and each thing seemed lifted up by light, the twisted cypress, the poppies one at a time into a singular flame. On the beach, our daughters were rubbing their bodies into angels, fanning wings across the sand. You'd left a yellow pad beside my chair, and I could hear your voice, the one that never speaks aloud, sailing a pen down those narrow lines. And why not simply write, desire was a wound and it was beautiful, the way the dark reins of a boat kept filling like a furrow, kept pulling the shoreline slowly wider. Or that longing was the one place we could never fully enter, the bay rising up in wind around the bodies of that unclothed couple we passed yesterday in an almost hidden cove, how they stopped moving but did not come apart. And even if what we loved swelled and spoke between us, 
Even if you had written, beauty is the unfolding of a secret, his arms above her, her face curtained in his hair. When we returned, ready to lie down together, the children leaned across the table, asking, always asking. You built a tent of coals, I husked the corn. It must have been then, the dark stones heating inside their flame, that you sat here just inside the splintered shoals of daylight and picked up the yellow paper. Juniperus, Quercus, liquid amber, rosmarinus, the Latin of every Eden we'd had to wait outside, spilling from your pen. Three. We stood outside after dinner and watched our children on the swings you had rigged beneath two pines. The world came closer with its relentless tides, the unseen fields of wind and shine, one last hill of poppies curled inside their orange flags. And I wanted to ask if we cannot help but be called back to earth, to what end do we borrow this kind of sweetness? And I wanted to believe the answer our girls were working out in front, that finally we would return like this at dusk, tethered to sky, arms and knees rowing against the current, a runnel of pain and bone moving away, a body of light slipping in. No, a river of light, freed from the body of want. We had loved enough. We had traveled through. Thank you. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. So <laughs> we do have a small audience here today and they're applauding and smiling. So the the imagery is just incredibly rich. There's there's some attention to sound, definitely. Uh and a really that's really interesting. And I've seen that in some of your other poems. But I think, you know, the real strength and metaphor, simile, and in this in this case, especially imagery. Um, and I'm wondering how uh, a girl from Flint, Michigan, is that? <laughs> how, um, I've never been to Flint, but I've that's not, okay. I, this is you not. You don't need to go. <laughs> this is, and I, but I have been to points of Michigan where there's certainly beautiful yes. parts of nature and yes. and water and and so forth, and and so I can see that influence. And I'm wondering if that's where that comes from. Partially, do you have, you know, or if well, Flint. If Flint had parts that I didn't know about, so. Well, I think every town has parts that the adult doesn't know about and the kids do, right? Right. And right near our house was a little creek um, Mm. that I used to go play at a lot. I spent hours there. And and behind that creek was a huge field with train tracks. And it was all very, you know, to a little kid, it's all very exciting. And that was back in the days when there were not such a thing as play dates. And kids just roamed around until it was dark. And once it got dark enough, you knew you'd be in trouble if you didn't go home. And I, I think I was like a lot of kids who have a very difficult childhood. I found a lot of solace in nature. And um I pretty much tried to stay away from home as much as I could. It was not a happy place. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I don't know why. I always felt very comforted being outside. So I spent a lot of time down by this creek. Um, And, of course, as a kid, it was totally magical to me. An escape. An escape, but even better than escape because it was consolation. It was solace. It was was beauty, you know. I mean, I learned about beauty there. Did you have a... a 
bright imagination as a child? Um, I'm told that I did by okay. everybody who knew me. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was I was pretty um, precocious as well. I remember. Do you remember the show Zoom? It was sure. a, it was a children's show produced yeah. by kids, yeah. and I loved it. And so, of course, I had to write a book. Um, and they told me they would they were going to produce it on Zoom. I wrote and illustrated this book, and I remember also sending um, lots of books to Dr. Zeus and asking him why he didn't want to publish my books since they were just as good as his, <laughs> including drawings. <laughs> so um, actually, I read a couple of. I read a couple of those things to my kids when they were little. And they said, "Mom, those are the best ones you ever wrote." <laughs> well, there's also a practice of that you've employed of uh, that I've seen in more, you know, more recent decades. And you, the people you read certainly are contemporaries, right? Or perhaps a little bit older than you, but not. You know, well, some of them are dead now, so many, they're definitely many, older than me. But many still live. <laughs> many still living. <laughs> and you know, one of my favorite poets is Robert Pinsky, and I've noticed this tendency towards uh, li- uh, b- listing oh, or listing things. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And you you have a, a little bit of a habit of you know listing the. I can't pronounce it. I, Steve can Jun- juniperus. Oh, juniperus. Quercus. I'm probably saying liquid it wrong. Amber. Yeah. Rose, I think Rose it's Rosmarinus. Most Rosmarinus. Rose okay. Is it Marinus? Or, what? From Latin, yeah. Close. Those are Latin. Okay, you have to know the Latin to, to get it. But it's um, it's also in some of your other poems, you, you have kind of a, a listing quality, which has, you know, a very nice uh, sound um, effect to, to add to the imagery, but it includes the imagery itself, which is, you know, that's that makes makes it even more interesting. Well, and some so. of that really does have to do with, um, to me, my earliest memories of why I loved poetry was they were one of the few things that would seem to make my parents genuinely happy was when they would read poetry to us. And the sound was something I was so drawn to. So my father loved Ogden Nash, which, mm. you know, I don't know if other sure. people have heard of him, but he's this mm. very clever, witty poet who did lots of funny, funny rhymes. He'd make up words to rhyme. And then my mother always read us the um, A.A. Milne books, like Now when, mm-hmm. now We Are Six and When We Were Very Young. And, and just something about the, the soothing quality of the sound in their mouths was um, a real contrast to the unhappiness in my family. Mm-hmm. And um, so I know that a lot of when I'm writing, the, for me, the sound is really important. I, I'm listening a lot for sound, but I couldn't tell you in any kind of educated way what I'm doing. It's just sound is super important to me. It just it comes naturally. Your practice, your use of listing and other sound devices, assonance I've seen in some of this, where the the vowel sounds repeat. Yeah, that um, stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that's <laughs> most the stuff. of us have to work at it <laughs> to get it, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, that's that's terrific. But the other interesting thing I want, and I, we have a lot more to read, of course, uh, and not too much time, more time. But uh, another thing I've noticed is you, you'll often use couplets or tercets, or you'll use the single, the single paragraph stanza or a single stanza, uh, you know, which we see in a lot of modern poetry. But occasionally, you do a thing where there are these sort of waves of lines or undulations, I would guess, of 
you'll see um, where the lines come back and forth. Or uh, so there's something about in some of the poems where you choose a, a shape that gives something visual to the reading uh, of the poem and perhaps the slows the reader down. Uh, here's another one, poem ending with an unanswered question uh, is one where you yeah. have uh, varying line lengths. And it's something other poets use, but how, how do you know when to use or do you, is it just um, as with your use of sound, it's just something that comes naturally? No, it doesn't come naturally. In fact, mm -hmm. if I if I ever do get an MFA, it's going to be almost entirely for that reason. <laughs> because I have no idea. When, when I'm struggling with form, I'm struggling with um, a couple things. One is I I have been told over and over again that that what I write is dense and that it's it's hard to take in without space in between it. Um, and so that's part of my concern is, is how I can make enough space for things to be understood. Um, the other thing I'm concerned about is very much a sound issue. It is slowing things down. It's also trying to give space in the right places because silence is so much of sound. And silence is so um, important to poetry and it's so important to me when I'm writing um, because I don't think you can like music without really wanting to understand and embrace silence. But I don't have a single educated thing to say about why I choose the form I choose other than that. Okay. That's like another natural. Well, it, except it's, I struggle at it a lot. I spend, a, I probably spend more time doing that than anything else in my writing is trying to figure out the form that the poem should be in. Right. And I try over and over and over and over. And often I just, often it's one of those things where you just abandon it. Like you've tried so hard. So in this, the new collection of Ordinary Psalms, is that something that's happening too? Yeah. Will, this, will the Psalms all have sort of the same form? Since it's one cohesive unit, perhaps, of Psalms, will they all have, will they all be couplets or tercets or will be they will they be varied? Have you decided that yet? Or Maybe I'll decide it right now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I actually. Should we have audience participation? <laughs> yeah, it's really. Anyone here have a suggestion? Anybody for turret, tercets? You know, I'm actually trying to vary them because the oh. idea of the ordinary psalm is to try to make a series of different quotidian concerns. And so I'm trying to vary the form, but I, but I do get stuck a lot, like at what form they should be in. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times what I really want to do is I look at poems I really like and I like their form and I'm like, why can't my poem work in that form? And it just doesn't. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Well, let's, let's hear another Psalm if you have. Oh, thank you. Second. That's so kind of you. Okay. This one is, um, this poem is written ordinary psalm with seizure. And the word seizure is really important in this poem and to me. My father was a neurologist and um, I was very involved in his career. He used to take me with him all the time. I think he really wanted me to be a doctor, which I wasn't. But he dealt a lot with epilepsy and all, all kinds of um, seizures. I knew a lot about them. But also the word refers to the fact that my father had a very explosive temper and he would become seized with this sort of uncontrollable rage and almost turn into another person when he was angry. It's also a really interesting word in terms of taking hold of something or owning something all of a sudden. So it's a it's a really multi-layered uh, word with many meanings. And so um, I just wanted to uh, 
say that before I read the poem. So it's called Ordinary Psalm with Seizure. You can't know what will take hold in December's gone or where your old dog will go down foaming, legs groundless and twitching, only that a welter of wood ducks will rise up from the rain-damp earth crying, your own voice catching, caught. Before he killed himself, my friend confessed that Jesus had entered his adolescence like a swarm of wasps until he woke one winter, vacated, his soul honeycombed and paper thin, his hammock tied to a tangerine tree, his mouth alive with juice and sun and sting. In a world that holds us hostage, even as it is a window unlatched and opening, time is half visible beneath its gold dress of dusk. My truck gunning through the rice fields, tundra swans bugling overhead, singing, it's okay, it's okay, even if he cannot hear. Until it's over, we are terrestrial bodies housing our own light. We are message and messenger tangled up in biochemical nets that lurch between then and now, the way stations, the small animal clinics, a vet shaving my dog's hind paw before needling in what kills, and crying too, face down in the blonde hummock and pelt of him. There are days that linger and days that burn. All the rest are a devotional on surrender, a schooling in the forces that seize us completely. And if you're lucky, a good dog to teach that suffering is not your fault, just a condition of passing through. Mm. Wonderful. Well, I think I want to shift gears here. And I know that uh, you have a special someone in your life celebrating a birthday today. Oh, thank you. (laughs) This won't be aired for a while, but it'll be a late uh, gift, perhaps. Uh, You have a poem in The Real Paradise it's also from a uh, small disaster scene in sunlight. And I'd love to hear you read that poem if you wouldn't mind. Absolutely. Um, Page 55 if you have it at home. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's my youngest daughter's birthday day. She's 20 years old. This was written when she was pretty little. I think she was about eight or nine. She's a true nature girl. And happy birthday, Mia, even though it's a little belated. In the real paradise. There are seven strings of bird song, a brief percussive flash as a stellar jay and nuthatch brawl inside a pine. And of course, there is our youngest, the child we almost didn't have, throwing driftwood off the dock. There is a hatch of flies to swoon and plummet in the seaweed, the muscled crust of shore. There is everything we desire but still don't have. Like the farmer's cows our daughter has wanted more than half her life to touch. Or in the hour of her deepest sleep, you and I unclothed. After all these years, still unsure, still a little shy. Beautiful. One question I wanted to ask you was just about your sort of daily or weekly process of writing. Mm. Do Do you write every day? Do you write... You know, what is the pattern like? 
So it's changed over the years. Um, I was pretty disciplined about trying to write um, almost every day. When my kids were little, I'd try to write when they were napping. But over time, it's become harder and harder to do that, in part because I just really resent having to tear myself away from what I'm working on. And so I've now clustered into clumps. And what I do now is I I go away um, once or twice a month for uh, as long as I can. It's usually two days. And I stay by myself and I read and I write and I stay up as late as I want and um, basically do nothing but that. And it's absolutely glorious. I, I still hate having to come home, but um, I feel like I can really get something started so that if I need time to work on it, you know, I have that time to work on it over the week as opposed to trying – for me, trying to start something and then getting pulled away, it – it's just so irritating. <laughs> I wish I didn't have to earn a living, but I do. Well, it sounds like a practice we could all use is a kind of a retreat from yes. the ordinary to, yes. get, to get to something where you're not disturbed and you can concentrate and focus. Yes, and, yeah. that's exactly right. And, and I do actually feel like I enter a semi-altered state in the sense of um, – because I'm alone, I can be as permeable as I want and not feel hurt by things all the time. Because I think being in that permeable state when you're really writing makes the world hurt more. And yeah. especially things people say or do or want from me. Um, when I'm alone, I feel like I can just be this big, open, oozing wound and nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in The Real Paradise, the poem you just read wasn't written that long ago. Do you remember how it came? Do you remember where you were when you wrote it or how it came to you? Oh, that, totally. That this was a poem? Well, so number one, that was actually one of the oldest ones in that book. So my books usually take me eight to 10 years because mm. um, I don't have a lot of time in my life for writing and I have even less time for self-promotion. Um, so that, that was a really old one. And I do remember it really well because I remember... Um, there were these weekends that we used to have this place on Tamales Bay that was part of the park service. It was the end of a lease and before the park service took it back. And there were so many days we'd spend up there with our kids that just, it literally felt like we were in paradise. Mm. Uh, it was so beautiful up there and there were animals everywhere and water and the light was so gorgeous and the kids were little and they used to run around in their nate, you know, either naked or in boots. Um, <laughs> and, I remember just thinking about the fact that this is the real paradise and, and the fact that we were about to lose the place, you know, we didn't have it for that long, mm -hmm. um, sort of added to the sense of realness about it. You don't really get paradise for very long, even, even in the Bible, you know? Right. <laughs> well, there you have it, folks. A little bit of paradise today. Julie, I just wanted to thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you, Lawrence Dinkins Jr. for uh, putting this terrific program together. Um, you'll see us a week or pardon me, a month from now um, when it's, when it's released, but look for series number 26. Uh, that's my, my interview with her. And then, and I just want to say thank you. For oh, thank you. And thank Julie. you it's been Lawrence. A real pleasure. Lawrence keeps it light and fun around here. It's really too so. bad. His laughter is not on this. <laughs> 
Well, we can you do that post-show, maybe add some? <laughs> uh, thank you so much. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Copy and Poets. Thank <laughs> you.